0: Well the music's been great, fellowship's wonderful, i want to take you to the book of Acts and I want to, I've entitled this message Summing Up the Church. We got a lot of accountants and teachers in our church and they're accustomed to math problems and math questions and we find something interesting in the early church. I want to show it to you first, so look with me at Acts chapter number 2 to begin with and I want you to take a look with me here in Acts 2. At the very end of the chapter, verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who should be saved. So he added to the church. Skip over a little bit with me to chapter 5 and look down at verse 14. Chapter 5 verse 14. And the Bible says, and believers were increasingly what? Added "Added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Now flip over again to chapter 9. Look over there, chapter 9. Most of you remember that chapter 9 records the uh, conversion of Paul when he used to be Saul And toward uh, the end of the chapter, latter half anyway, verse 31, we find these words. Verse 31 of chapter 9. Then the churches, plural, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria, had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were what? multiplied in this short period of time the church the original church there was but one in jerusalem the church was added to until it became multiplied and now there are many churches throughout the region and so god has taken and went from addition to multiplication with us in this text we think about, I was hesitant to preach on this subject uh, using a math analogy because of the fear so many people have of math. You might be like this one lady. Did you bring her up for us? How I see math word problems. If you have four pencils and I have seven apples, how many pancakes will fit on the roof? <laughs> the answer is purple because aliens don't wear hats. Some of you may... I love this one. I think this was either my paper growing up or Brother Max's paper, I don't know, but to change centimeters to meters, you take out city. <laughs> I like that answer. Don't you? Some, some of our young people, I'm going to use that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Math problems. We know the difference, though, between addition and multiplication. And what we're seeing here is God blessing. And not just blessing a little bit, but blessing a lot. So what about this church? What was it like? What happened? What did they do that resulted in this kind of blessing? And and that's what we're going to do now. We're going to study that. There are actually five items that we could say all sum up the blessings of God on the early church and I want to give them to you and and we need to make sure we're doing them the very first thing in your notes if you're taking notes you want to write them down please was their relay of the message I'm going to talk about how they communicated Christ the message of the word of God now to do that let me do this with you let's go back to chapter 2 of Acts and in chapter 2 I want to begin reading with you in uh, verse number 40 And so the Bible says, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls, here's the phrase, were added to them. So, we're dealing with addition now, dealing with the, the blessings of God. And so, the Bible says this was a result of other words that were used in the way of testifying and exhorting the people. He, in that text, is Peter. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and began to preach. And not to read the entire thing to you, but just to kind of hit some of the highlights. It's interesting if you go back to verse 16 of the same chapter, you find that Peter mentions, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes into an explanation and he quotes from Joel. Right after that, in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes into an explanation of who Jesus is. And then right after that, he goes into what David said, the psalmist, and and how he also was uh, letting people know about the hope of the Messiah. So here's what I want to get across to you. The message that is being conveyed is the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. I was thinking earlier, you know, if you went to a car dealership, and you went in there and you sat down and they were talking with you and they introduced you to this great-looking vehicle and you went over and sat in it. They began to talk to you about it and they would say things to you like it has all kinds of bells and whistles. It's got the power windows, got the sunroof retractable this and that, navigation system. I mean it's got the seats that heat up and uh, they got all this stuff that it's just unbelievable. And you say, well how much gas mileage? Well, It doesn't actually have an engine. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? You wouldn't buy that car. I hope you wouldn't. (laughs) You say, what are you getting at? A church can have all kinds of bells and whistles, but if it doesn't have the message of Jesus Christ, it's not going anywhere. And it's not a New Testament church. It's important that we understand the, the need to focus on and center around the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. It's that simple. It's not a complicated thing. We tend to complicate worship. We, we're good at complicating stuff, man. And, and it's really not complicated at all. It's pretty simple. Tell somebody what Jesus did and then tell them again. And eventually somebody's going to understand what he did and they're going to trust Christ as their Savior. So Peter is preaching the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 reminds us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We do live in a day and age where what happened in this text, which I'm about to read to you, is not something that people want to experience. Let me show you what I mean. As a result of the Word of God being preached, and as a result of Peter telling them what the Word of God says, look back in verse 37 with me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Somebody has said to me some time ago, Pastor, how come you still do invitations? You know, a lot of churches don't do that. Why do you do an invitation? Let me tell you why. Because I believe the teaching of the Word of God, it it is alive and it is powerful and it brings us to a point. If we'll listen to it, it will bring us to a point in which we ask that same question, what do I need to do about this now? And without an invitation to give us an opportunity to do something about it, the Word of God forces a response. And and some of us would agree that early on in our Christian life, we knew what that was. And maybe you frequent in the altar, but over a period of time, God has spoken and we have said, I really don't want to respond to that. So the majority of people have learned not to respond even though the Holy Spirit still does the work of the Holy Spirit. And I caution you on resisting him. If you will resist him on some occasions you'll resist him in others. And so I ask you today to give some thought to that. The cutting of the heart. We live in a day and age which probably could be uh, probably illustrated by One fellow I was listening to, he said he got a little frustrated and aggravated, he couldn't lose weight. So he bought himself a digital scale. And it's one of those scales when you stand on it, it starts at zero and climbs, you know. And he said he learned that he just jumps off when he gets to this desired weight. (laughs) Today I went away X amount. So, oh, that's me. I've done it. Can you imagine that? And it's almost like, you know, I'm going to keep looking for uh, a church that, that maybe the Word of God uh, isn't, as, isn't as convicting or as, as uh, powerful or potent because I don't really want to hear that I need some work. Well, let me let you in on something. Every one of us need work, man. There are none of us that don't need some kind of sharpening and carving to be more like Jesus. Every one of us, uh, every one of us needs it. They relayed the message. And then I I think it's interesting, number two, we're going to call it their reception of the Messiah. Those who heard the word responded by receiving Jesus as their Savior. Now this is an interesting text and it is often misunderstood. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to read it to you and elaborate a little bit on it. It says down in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, I will admit that this appears to indicate baptism is essential for salvation. You don't need to amend that because it's not correct doctrine. But it is what it appears. It does appear that way. Now, there's a rule of thumb, if you will use it, you will be wise, and that is you interpret the unclear by the clear. You compare Scripture to Scripture. If you pull a verse of scripture out, you can make it say anything you want to make it say. And that's how a lot of people have gotten involved in false teaching and false doctrines. So let's do this. Let's compare this statement to other statements that have to do with the forgiveness of sin. And the fact is that the Bible deals with it uh, here in in verse 38. And then again, if you'll look in uh, uh, verse number 19 of chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 19. Also right here in the book of Acts. And it reads this way. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice it says nothing about baptism. So how can both of these statements be true? Because the first one is a decision to be saved that is followed by baptism. That's why. You say do you have any further proof than that? Yeah matter of fact. Uh, I do and and as you keep reading first of all Acts chapter 10 verse 43 to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin so it's not by the act of baptism that we get forgiveness of sin it's through putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ Acts chapter 8 and beginning in verse 35 is probably a very clear you really don't need more than this to understand that salvation and baptism are not one and the same, but yet an act of salvation needs to be, and then baptism should follow. But baptism was promoted more, particularly in the early church, than we see it being promoted today. And and I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, maybe because it's an added commitment. And we live in a world, and don't take any offense to this, I'm talking about the rest of the world, certainly no one that's listening to me right now, but uh, we live in a world where commitment comes difficult. It becomes difficult. It's hard for us to commit. And say you know I'm going to take that step. And so here uh, in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, there is an evangelist by the name of Philip. Do you remember the story? And Philip joins himself with a chariot and teaches the eunuch about Jesus, the Ethiopian eunuch, and we read the text beginning in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. I love that. He preached Jesus to him. And by the way, if the Lord is calling you to preach, let me remind you of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 2 preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince rebuke exhort with all long suffering and teaching and then he goes on to say for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So it's important that we preach Jesus. It's important that we tell people what the word of God has to say. And the Lord may be dealing with your heart about surrendering to such a ministry. But here the Bible says, Philip, preach Jesus. Now as they went down the road, the Bible says, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now let me pause a moment. I find this intriguing. You may not, but I find it very interesting that the Bible says Philip was preaching Jesus. Now, we're not told what all he preached. We just know that it's under the category of Jesus. Can I get an uh uh-huh? That's what it is. He preached Jesus. But apparently, he included a lesson on baptism. Or the man would not have known anything about it. So, Peter, I'm sorry, Philip is preaching Jesus, and in the process, he mentions somewhere along the road. Listen. When a person believes, when a person has exercised faith in Jesus Christ, then they follow the Lord in baptism, which symbolizes the death of the old man, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection into the new life, or the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what happens. So the eunuch looks over and he sees the water, and he asks, what hinders me from being baptized? Now here's the answer. Philip said, verse 37, If you believe with all your heart, you may. He said, you've got to be qualified to be baptized. The baptism is not the act of believing. You must first have an act of believing and then get baptized. Does that make sense? Well, that's very important. and I think it's very clear. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, that's hard to do in a cup of water amen I'm just saying I heard a preacher say not long ago we don't care whether you've been sprinkled or whatever's happened to you well if you're not concerned about doing it the Bible way then really it doesn't matter (laughs) neither does anything else next week let's just all sleep in we'll get some rest can I get an amen because if we're not going to do it the Bible way there's no need to be here there's no need for that, but if you're going to do it, the Bible with him, pay attention to what the Bible says. Amen. You say you don't know, preacher. My family's been doing that for like so many generations. Well, it doesn't matter how long we've been doing whatever. They went down into the water and came up out of the water. It's a symbol of burial. I've yet to meet the person that's buried with a little bit of dirt on his forehead. I just haven't seen that. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just saying. Amen? Amen. Some of us need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, the way the scripture says do it. We need to make that commitment. If you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, have you followed him in baptism? That becomes the question that we need to answer. If you were baptized into a church or baptized under the impression that it washed away your sin, you were baptized by the wrong authority and under the wrong doctrine. And that ought to be something you stop and look at and say, wait a minute, I want to do what is right here to do. And that is you receive Jesus as your Savior, you get born again first, and then you follow the Lord in baptism, okay? So let me just clarify that. Now that I have clarified it, I'll move on. Say amen. Amen. (laughs) Number three, the third thing on the list that they did, their reliance on mentoring. Their reliance on mentoring, if you're taking notes there. So the Bible says, uh, look back in our original text, Acts chapter 2. Let me read verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day were added 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now I know, I said the word. Doctrine. Doctrine. Preacher, you're breaking all the rules, man. You, you, you got on folks that don't agree about baptism and now you're talking about the word doctrine. You can't build a church that way, don't you know? Stay away from doctrine. <laughs> I had a guy come to me once many years ago in the ministry. He said, you know, preacher, he said, I love your teaching, but I don't agree with your doctrine. <laughs> I said, sir, I want to say this kindly, but do you know what the word doctrine means? I said, it means teaching. So you love my teaching, but you don't, you don't agree with my teaching? You don't agree, you don't like it? What are you saying, man? You got to know what you believe. You know what I love about our young people? Can I talk to you for a minute, young people? I, I love this about the up and coming generation. I really do. I love this. So many of them today have, have actually made it a point of, of interest to have answers to questions. The Generation Z that is coming up, they have rejected the idea, for the most part, that there are no absolutes. That there is no definition. And I love that. I love that because somewhere that is the hope of the church in the future, should the Lord tarry his coming. That young people say, wait a minute, you mean God said what he meant and meant what he said? You mean there's a right way and a wrong way? You mean there's actually a truth and and his name is Jesus? You mean there's, yes, that's what I mean. And it's a wonderful thing when we realize that and know that. Amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. I'm so excited about this up and coming generation and what God is doing and this reliance on mentoring. What does it mean? They spent time together. They fellowship. They broke bread and they prayed together and they continued in the doctrine that, that to be an apostle. I want you to follow me now because some of you have friends that are apostles. <laughs> We've had them come to our church. Every now and then somebody will meet me and they'll say, I'm apostle so and so I don't, and I don't, I don't treat them poorly. I'm actually in awe because to be an apostle you have to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus you had to have witnessed the resurrected Savior and so that's incredible (laughs) and you had to have been taught personally by Jesus to be an apostle now that's Bible folks It may not be the practice of the modern day Christianity, but it is Bible. That's why there are no apostles today. The closest thing we have to one is called a missionary because the word means sent one. And when you study the spiritual gifts, you study that God gave the apostles certain gifts. There are no more apostles after the apostle Paul. You say, what are you getting at? These were people who had listened to Jesus. They sat at his feet. They were taught by Jesus. And they're the ones now that are teaching the early church. It's important that we carry on the truth of the word of God. And they sat down with each other and they fellowshiped and they broke bread and they prayed together. I began to look at this and I thought, this is all about mentoring. That's what this is. Mentoring. Mentoring. How did you learn to pray? Was it not listening to somebody else pray? How did you learn answers to your questions? Somewhere along the road, if you, if you are at a place in your life where you call yourself and believe that you're spiritually mature, it is because you sat with somebody and you learned. It is because you asked questions and you got answers. It is because you figured things out and you asked somebody else who had figured things out. So there was a built-in mentoring They didn't have the 18 week discipleship course called Directions. They just sat down over a bowl of olive oil and bread. Amen. Notice I didn't say broccoli and cheese, I'm just saying. And have got rid of sin, is what they did. There was a reliance on mentoring. Titus chapter 2 reads this way. It says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Notice this phrase, please. That the word of God may not be blasphemed now let me pause because the way you live mom and dad either brings glory to God in his word or it will blaspheme it your actions will teach a lot louder than your words will ever teach And if there are things you are doing and things you are saying and and you're living a life that you know isn't right, then get it right. At least go to your children and say, daddy is working on it, mama is working on it, and together we can pray and together we can grow. But this whole idea of being something somewhere else different than what you are in front of God needs to be done away with. We need to understand that we should live the genuine Christian life, not put on a a pretense and not try to act like we're something that we're really not. Mentoring involves a genuineness and an honesty about who we are and what we're doing. Be real. Can I get an amen? amen? Be real. Now that might mean admitting that you got some things that are wrong. Well, hello. Don't we? It's important. Then the Bible says, Likewise, exhort the young man to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So I don't like so-and-so talking about me. Make sure it's false. You know, Jesus said that was going to happen, by the way. Huh? he said people are going to falsely accuse you I always tell people look when you're accused just make sure it's false you can't do anything about the accusation but you can make sure it's false amen so make sure of that make sure of that and then notice with me if you will number four and I know we're all amazed I only have five points and I'm already on number four some of you are thinking you're getting out early it's a long no I'm just kidding Number four, how they resourced the ministry. Their resourcing of the ministry. Look at what they did. Let's jump back into verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. And had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. Let me pause a minute. Now, what do you? My goodness! Now, God never told them to do this. There is nothing in the scriptures that say Jesus instructed the early church. Now this is what you need to do. I want you to live in a type of a communal type thing where people sell their properties and their belongings and they all bring it in and you just take care of each other. But he did tell them to love each other. And so in the process of doing ministry, hear me, in the process of doing ministry... They said, this is one way we can resolve the issues and the problems. We can meet needs by doing this. And that's what they did. They resourced the ministry by bringing in their goods and and sort of pooling them together and taking care of the need. Now let me say this to you. Ministry has always had a cost associated with it. Always. Always. You can go back to the Old Testament and the priests ate of the offerings. They had to eat. So they ate of the animals that were brought in. The Lord tells us that they took up an offering to even build the first sanctuary, that, that tabernacle that, uh, that was movable, the, 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 the church in a box, the original church in the box, if you will, that could be all set up and taken down and moved from location to location. They took up an offering in order to do that. There's always been a cost associated with ministry. Now the Bible tells us this. In Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 1, even Jesus' ministry had a cost associated with it. I want to show this to you because I'm, I'm sort of amazed at this. When I read this, sometimes, and you pray for your pastor, sometimes my mind wonders. I didn't hear an amen from my wife. I appreciate that, honey she's got a special place in heaven. (laughs) Luke chapter 8 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene out of whom had come seven demons and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant or steward and Susanna, and notice this, and many others who provided for him from their substance what are are we talking about the guy that took the little boy's lunch and fed thousands you ever wondered about that why didn't Jesus as he walked along just snap his fingers and have all the food he wanted Couldn't he? When Jesus shows up at the well and he is thirsty and he is tired and he sits down, could Jesus not have simply brought the water up in a fountain type fashion? Here's the thing about Jesus, and we all know it. He can do anything. But he doesn't use miracles to provide the very needs of the cost of the ministry. That intrigues me. Instead what he does is he blesses people who turn around and are a blessing back to him. That's what he's chosen to do. I don't understand it I observe it because if it were up to you and I we could snap our finger and have the house that we wanted on the property that we want and all of it paid for we would do it. Am I right? All the food you want? Steak. A lot of steak. <laughs> just just kind of blink your eye. No, you do away with broccoli right away. Just be done. You <laughs> say... So what are you getting at? Here, let me show you something else. Remember when Jesus, this is a great story. Remember when Jesus was getting ready to come into Jerusalem during his last week and he was about to be crucified, he was about to be mocked and the trial and all that he was going to go through. Remember all that? And and he's getting ready to come in. There's a prophecy way back in the Old Testament. It is uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9. It reads this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so the time comes. The time comes. Jesus is about to come in. It's the triumphant entry. You'll find that up in the margin of your Bible somewhere, usually. So there is a. uh, There is a. um, Brother Bart, how are you doing, man? It's my best friend from high school, Bart and Maria. Would you welcome them, please? Wow! Good. I told you my mind does that. Just goes. Good to see you, man. Wow! All right. Hope he gets saved today. He's no. I'm just kidding. We grew up together. so good to have Bart. I've lost my train of thought. Oh, here we are. The time has come. The time has come. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, but the prophecy has already dictated what has to be done. Now, if it were you and I, and some of us like to think way ahead, others of us are day by day, (laughs) wouldn't he have purchased the donkey well in advance? Wouldn't he have thought about this event? Wouldn't he have done something to nurture that he might have the donkey and the colt? And I've said this before, but, but it's interesting. People say, how did he ride two beasts? Riding two beasts is like driving two cars. No, it's not. They would take in hammock between, they would take and put clothes between the two beasts and he would ride on the hammock. And so the prophecy was there would be two beasts. There would be a donkey and the colt of the donkey and that's how he would enter in. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said here's what you will find. You go over here and you will find a colt tied and the donkey tied and you bring them to me. And then Jesus said this, if they ask you what you're doing, tell them this, the Lord has need and they will let them go. Now that's recorded for us in Matthew 21 verse 3. And if anyone say anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. What? I I thought Jesus could do anything. Couldn't he take that palm tree over there and snap his finger and it become a donkey? Yeah. But he used what he gave to someone else. And you know what happened, you know the story, don't you? They let them go. They gave them because the Lord had need. We don't often think of our Savior as being a God in need. Now, we see ourselves as being in need. I I saw a new Corvette yesterday, I need. I'm just saying. I can make visits a lot faster, hospital here, people... I'm just kidding you but what I am saying is sometimes we think we have the need when in fact the Lord says wait a minute have I not blessed you have I not done for you here in the early church they took what God had blessed them with and they resourced the ministry with it that's important and then last of all number five and all God's people said amen number five They're rejoicing with members. I want you to see that. They rejoiced with the members of the church. I want to talk about this just a minute with you. Let's read again what we read earlier, verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had... All things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. I love that that text. And let me share with you what they did. The Bible says they had this unity; they were in one accord. And they broke bread from house to house. They fellowshiped together. And they had this gladness about them. Now if you're a guest here today. Let me tell you something about East Point. I've had the privilege of pastoring this great church for two years now. And there is an atmosphere of gladness here. And if that's not what you're looking for. You might not want to come back. Because there's an atmosphere of gladness. There are people that just have a genuine love for each other and a love for the Lord. Let's always keep that. Now I find something in this text that is interesting. It's translated in the text that I just read to you as, as simply simplicity of heart. The word in the Greek is a word that literally means to a plane. It refers to a plane without rock Or any stumbling stones. In other words, they had a smoothness in the life that they lived. There was this removal of things that caused stumbling for people. This morning in the ABF, our adult Bible fellowship class, we talked a little bit about the building of the wall around Jerusalem by Nehemiah. And in one of the verses of scripture we looked at, the Bible says that the strength of those who were doing the work began to decay. They began weak because there was so much rubbish in the way. Can I say to you this, ladies and gentlemen? It's important for the church. It's important for individuals because the church is the individuals. It's not the building. It's the people of God. It's important for us to do away with the rubbish. It's important for us to get rid of the stuff that causes us to stumble and others to stumble. It's important because you cannot build as long as the rubbish is in the way. You cannot enjoy the additions nor the multiplication of a church as long as the rubbish is in the way. So they rejoice together. I believe, and I just want to say this to you so you know your pastor's heart. I believe that a church ought to be effective in outreach. That is one of the reasons since I've been here, we have gone back to some things you've done in years past, like the sports ministry, like the community fest, things you did before that were an outreach to the community and things I think are still a great outreach today. We have some guests here today from our our Christian uh, preschool and daycare ministry. They've come today to worship with us, and we're so honored at that. These are outreaches, but listen to me for just a minute. If all you do is outreach, and you have no inreach, then you fail to develop the kind of thing that the early church had, the rejoicing among the membership. Now, some of us, and I want to say this kindly because I do love you. There is no question. There are two things you can be sure of. God loves you, and your pastor loves you. I do love you, but I want you to hear me. Some of you have intentionally been aloof. Some of you have intentionally been recluse. And you have intentionally not put yourself in the environment of knowing the rest of your family. And I'm going to say to you what happens is like if you went home today and your family tried to gather at a table and you had people all gather around and you served a meal, but you said to those in your family, you said, hey, uh, listen, I don't want you to eat right now. As a matter of fact, I'd appreciate it if you just went somewhere else in the room and and you were real quiet because we're inviting the neighbors over. We've invited everybody down the street to come. And we want them to feel welcome. So we're going to welcome them and we're not going to do anything with you. Now a family can't survive that way. Neither can a church. Amen? Amen? Amen. There are people here you don't know their names. If you don't know their name, how can you rejoice with them? There are people here you've never sat down with to hear their story of how God's blessed them. And if you haven't sat down and heard their story, how can you rejoice with them? If you haven't heard their prayer request, how can you weep with them? That's what a family does. A family rejoices together and weeps together and prays together. And we're made strong together. But we've got to understand we are together. That type of unity is essential. Especially at a time when God is challenging us to increase our faith. And that's where we are as a church. This whole 2020 vision that we've been talking about. This thing of building a sanctuary and remodeling this building into a children's center. It all comes back to whether the church is strong enough to do the great work God has called us to do. And I encourage you. I, I truly want, I truly want us to constantly be added to. But man, wouldn't it be great if it just turned on into multiplication? It's not about numbers. It's about souls. It's about reaching other families that are struggling and hurting. And I'm telling you, they are. They are. So would you pray with me? Let's pray.